Podcast. My name is Jeff Sparrow. Listeners to the old Hullabaloo show will remember the regular segments featuring human rights lawyer Lizzie O'Shea. She's back in the country working on a fascinating project called Copwatch, which we're going to discuss today. Welcome, Lizzie. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's, it's great to be here. It's a great pleasure. What's Copwatch? So Copwatch is a program that's run uh, by me together with the National Justice Project, which is a non-for-profit legal firm that's based in Sydney. And what we are doing is we go to various places around the country, Aboriginal communities in particular, and we run workshops that talk about filming interactions with police. So the idea is that we want to workshop ideas about how to film interactions with police in a way that's safe but also effective. If I understand correctly, this derives from the campaign against police shootings in the US. So before we get on to the specifics of the Australian situation, maybe we should start there. Why do American police kill so many people? Oh, that's a very good question. I think... Uh, I mean, it is higher than other countries, isn't it? It is. But it's interesting because they don't actually officially count how many people they shoot um, in America, um, and which I think is kind of stunning given, extraordinary. given how often it seems to happen and how much outrage there is in the community. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of reasons why police shoot more people in the US compared to other places. I think it's a function of having a large uh, number of gun owners in the country um, and police that have a lot of weapons themselves, the increasing militarisation of police in the United States, you know, the, the um, events of the summer of last year where there were a lot of shootings that occurred on on film uh, and then resulted in a whole bunch of protests around this issue and, and police were using, testing out weapons that had been used in other theatres of war uh, in the United States on local populations. So I think there is a relationship also between American foreign policy and then what we see happening in domestic policing. Um, But look, it's a good question. I think part of it has to be the fact that there is a sense of impunity when it comes to police violence and police shootings. Uh, And I 
therefore also believe that filming these interactions does have some kind of impact. But what is interesting about the Black Lives Matter movement and also the filming of police violence in the US is that we haven't seen a lot of accountability arising from videos that we've seen online. So a lot of the people Mm. that you may have seen murdered by police on camera uh, didn't result in any kind of prosecution or any kind of accountability for those officers involved. There are some exceptions to that, and I don't think that means that the task is fruitless, but I think it does suggest that it's a deeper problem than merely visibility or knowing that this is happening. It's going to have to involve a whole cultural change, a whole different attitude to how we police communities, not just how the police use violence specifically. I'll I'll get onto that in a minute, but what do we know about the people who are being killed or brutalised by police in America. I mean, the way it's reported in this country is as a specifically racialized issue. Is that correct? Uh, well, actually, the police still kill a lot of white people as well as black people. So even though it may not appear like that as a um, everyday consumer of the media, they, they kill a lot of people. They use violence a lot. So it's not necessarily specifically racialized in that sense in that a lot of people are experiencing this kind of violence. But obviously then there is a disproportionate impact on uh, African-American communities uh, in part because they're also overrepresented in the um, criminal justice system. They're overrepresented in um, prisons. So they're an over-policed community for sure. And I think that is what leads to greater interactions with police, uh, but they're also organising and are working for accountability in a way that is quite uh, effective, I think, and has, has raised this issue in a way that hasn't been raised before um, in a good way. So that's partly why it's also more visible. But, yeah, there's a lot of violence and it's largely unaccountable and that's a problem across the board, across the whole country, and I think it's something that deserves our attention even if it weren't a racialised phenomenon, but there is definitely a race issue. How does the situation then compare with the situation in Australia. I mean, we don't have exact numbers of police killings in the US. Presumably we do in Australia? It's a much more rare phenomenon, but in Victoria at least, I know they used to count um, uses of things like tasers, as I understand it, and they've stop doing that um so we yeah we, we have smaller numbers which m- makes it easy to count you know we're a country that's a tenth of the size as well or less uh but what we do know as well about incarceration rates which are uh relevant and to this issue i think is um that ab- aboriginal people are over incarcerated to a shocking degree um and uh, the rates when i last checked are similar to rates of incarceration for African-American people, which is also shocking, I think. So it's a huge over-representation in prison. Um, Aboriginal women are the fastest-growing prison population in the country. Um, it's an enormous problem. I, I think those. I think it's often seen as a kind of mystifying problem. Why are Aboriginal people so overrepresented in prisons? And uh, that's why I think policing is interesting because you can take it a step back and figure out that you know this doesn't start with people going to prison for offences. It starts much earlier in how um, Aboriginal people engage with government in a whole variety of formats, which ultimately then also leads to over policing, um, uh, you know, being charged with offences that, um, you know, are minor that, that leads to a whole snowballing effect where people end up incarcerated. In the United States, they talk about this as the prison school to prison pipeline, which was a phrase I actually hadn't heard before I went and lived in the US, but it made a lot of sense to me. So, you know, they talk about having police and security guards um, in schools, uh, particularly in schools with minority rep- populations, that then lead to people eventually being charged with offences very early on 
which ultimately results in people having greater engagement with the criminal justice system and end up in prison. Um, that the idea that we groom people to go to prison is something that occurs, that's an active process that could be different as well. It's not just a neutral process where people commit offences and then are picked up by the police and put in prison. It's, it's not like that at all. And I think understanding it as a social phenomenon is helpful and why I think we need, when we talk about incarceration, we do need to talk about policing. Mm. In the US, of course, there's other specific issues, aren't there? I mean, Michelle Alexander in The New Jim Crow makes the argument that once people come out of the American prison system, they're then restricted in all sorts of ways in terms of the jobs they can get, their ability to vote, the kinds of housing they can get, Mm. which means that many of them have no choice but to go back into prison. Yeah. Her argument essentially is that it's a new form of segregation, that you have millions of people incarcerated and then they're um, they're disenfranchised literally, but also in a whole range of social ways, which means that they can no longer participate in um, you know, any kind of democratic system, which is a huge problem. Yeah. So I think it's a broader social issue. I think anyone who sees it as strictly a, an issue of public safety or cracking down on crime would, <laughs> I think, uh, need to take a second look at how these, these phenomenon work. And the prison system in the US is far more privatised than the prison system in Australia. So yes. I mean, I realise that there is an increase in private prisons here, but it's not quite to the same degree. No, and there's a whole lobbying um, arm of the private prison industry, and um, there's but the, the, that also produces interest. It produces interesting movements. There's a whole movement in the US as well of um, people who come to a town uh, where there's pr- there's a prison proposed to be built, and and it's obviously appealing to local communities, particularly because it's a source of jobs. Yep. And they say instead, let's build a dairy, and we'll make uh, products like yogurt and milk, and sell that. And they sell it on the basis that we're providing jobs in a different kind of industry than the prison industry, which I think is a great campaign. And I, I, you know, I like their yogurt and milk, but you know, the, it does create a different kind of activism, and, and America is very good at these kinds of things. But yeah, it's it's shocking. I do, yeah, it's also a problem I know from experience in working in places like Western Australia, where they talk about the difference between private and public prisons there, and the treatment that you receive, the kinds of services that are on offer, particularly for people who might have um, disabilities, which is uh, again a very overrepresented group in, in prison. It does create a qualitatively different experience for the prisoner to be in a public prison, a publicly owned prison rather than a private one. So there's that issue as well, which is um, which really comes to the fore in Australia, but it's quite it's a little bit different in the US because I'm not sure that that distinction necessarily exists. They definitely pack them in in the US in both public and private prisons. It's pretty appalling. Okay, let's talk about Copwatch then. Is this modelled after an American program or is this a, uh, something that's developed here in yeah. Yeah, so I worked in an organisation in the US that helped um, with trainings and capacity building for a number of different campaigns on using video effectively um, as evidence in legal proceedings but also in advocacy campaigns. And uh, one of the programs that they uh, worked with was a Copwatch program, particularly running out of the Midwest in the United States, but there's a lot of them in the US and it's a big phenomenon. Um, And so it made sense to me that something similar might be useful in Australia and the reaction's been really positive. So we were invited to four different communities to participate or run these workshops Um, and in that time we've also had another 16 communities ask for a workshop to be run in their their locality, which I think would be great. So there's a lot of interest in it. One of the things I like to say is that this stuff is already happening already children are particularly filming police interactions so it's not as though we're particularly encouraging people to do it but it's a phenomenon that's already occurring what we're trying to say is that 
you should think about how you do it um, so that you're doing it well, so that you're capturing what you need to capture on, in the frame, that you're also sharing it in a way that is safe so that you're not getting yourself into trouble or anyone else into trouble um, and that you stop and think and you've got someone to talk to before you share it. But obviously then there's also legal implications and um, the law in the places that we were in at least, um, we don't have a First Amendment in the United States, which is what guides the law in that respect, but which allows freedom of speech so you, can, you have the right to record. But we don't really have regulation of uh, recording in public places of police doing their duties. So in general, you um, do have a, a right to film police carrying out their duties in a public place. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if you are thinking of doing this, you should get advice in your local area. Um, but I think that's something that comes as a bit of a shock, actually, to the communities that we're working in, in part because I've seen a lot of these videos. People are filming, usually children, filming these interactions and the police say, you need to stop doing that. You don't have my permission. It's unlawful for you to do that. It's unlawful for you to share this on social media. All of which is untrue, um, at least where these these were being filmed, which is in New South Wales. Okay, there were some specific um, incidents that have highlighted the relationship, particularly between Indigenous people and the police. What role did the killing of Elijah Doughty in Kalgoorlie last year play in the Copwatch project? Uh, well, as people I'm sure are aware, there was a lot of protest after he uh, that child was killed and um, a lot of portrayal of Kalgoorlie as being this terrible place and this, the Aboriginal population as being inappropriate and in how they responded to the death of that child. And I saw that and I thought, this isn't right. You know, I, this seems like a terrible situation. Um, you know, I, I wonder what people think about it on the ground in Kalgoorlie. And so the National Justice Project that we're working with had built a relationship with the people there and that was one of the places we recently visited. And what I see there is a total breakdown of the relationship between police and the Aboriginal community in the most terrible way. They really feel frightened of how the police conduct themselves. Uh, I don't. Obviously, the the, the child was not actually killed by a police officer, but he, he was killed by a white person who'd been told to go and get his bike back from this this child, rather than the police actually intervening to do something about it, which create so many problems because, you know, when police don't do their job, a lot of um, basic things that you might think might work don't. So uh, even after he was he was killed, the, the crime scene wasn't properly secured. There wasn't proper, um, proper forensic evidence taken from what I can tell. And this, there's this mistrust that just builds on mistrust. Um, so I feel like that community really could benefit from having a total overhaul of their policing um, unit and I think you probably need outside intervention in that regard and there's a new commissioner in WA and I think he needs to do something about this as a priority. But but Aboriginal people rightly feel frightened and um, really uh, devastated by what occurred and a sense that justice wasn't done properly, um, that, their, that their experience wasn't treated seriously, that this, this death was treated differently than if it was a white person. And it's hard to argue against that and I don't know um, whether the police even care to. I'm not sure they're interested in trying to repair that relationship. Uh, but it's devastating and they shouldn't have to put up with it. There's this real sense when you go into these communities that when they say that they've had an experience with police that is not good, they will not be believed. And I can understand where that comes from. So part of, the, part of the process of running these workshops is to say, well, here's one way in which you might be able to get your story believed. It's not a total solution to the problem of policing in Kalgoorlie by any stretch, but it's a tool that can be used to show people in Sydney and Melbourne, for example, what it's like to live in a community where you're frightened of the police and they treat you with disrespect. And the idea is over time that can uh, transform how these communities are perceived. They get to tell a story about what it's like to live there and they get to use that as a, 
a call for change. And that's what we see in these workshops. I mean, I'm not I'm not the person who's telling them what to do. They say, well, we want this, this, this. We want to, you know, in Redfern, they say, we want a Royal Commission into the policing of Aboriginal people. And to me, that seems like a very sensible demand, um, you know, that, that would have, give them the opportunity to explain what it's like, an open-ended process, um, mm. to to tell their story and, and give evidence. And, and my advice in response to that call was to say, well, let's start collecting videos now so that when we get that demand, we can show people what it's like to live here and show people how police treat you and how it needs to improve. And yeah, that's the idea of these kinds of workshops, to use them as a place to talk about the technical skills of filming, the legal aspects of that, but then also how uh, what kind of campaigning work can come out of it as well. Well, so that's my question. How involved has the community been in the Cop Watch program. My understanding was that they were crowdfunding yep. to, to, to set up some of these sessions. Is that right? Yeah, so we were invited to four places and as a result of that, we wanted to make sure that if we went there, we were doing it uh, well and we had the time as much as we could to do it properly. So um, the National Justice Project ran a crowdfunding campaign. They raised $63,000, which I think is very impressive. Uh, and hopefully we'll find other funding as well to continue it. But yeah, in the, that we worked with local partners, so that it might be a local activist or an elder. It might also be a school teacher in one case who helped us out talking to children and, and trying to get them um, interested and engaged with the program and then attending. But the idea, I think, would be that eventually these training materials could be uh, handed over to anyone. So if it's a local community member who wants to run a workshop like this, we'd provide the support for them to be able to do it themselves. Because I think uh, um, young children are probably more responsive to people from their own community than someone from the outside coming in and, and giving them advice or workshopping these ideas. So we definitely want to scale it up but make sure it's something that comes from um, local uh, leadership and is is seen to be organic and responsive to the concerns of that local community. Each place is quite different. Redfern is very different to Kalgoorlie and Alice Springs, again, is very different to Broken Hill, which were the places that we went to. And what confirmed to me in going to those places, they've all got their own specific issues. They know what they want and they know how to organise around it, but they need support and that's our job to give them that support so that they can lead on these campaigns. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the issues that were uncovered during these discussions, I mean, the, the, the tension and the conflict between these communities and the police, what is underpinning it? I mean, from the outside, the obvious issue would be to talk about racism, but is that all there is that's going on there? What, what, what is the basis for this, this toxic, um, these toxic encounters? Uh, there's a lot of it. It's funny, when we were on this trip we kept saying that everything comes back in some ways to colonialism and everything but you can't you can't just constantly say that because you've got to try and unpick these um, various threads that give rise to this fabric of a settler society that's never really had a proper reconciliation with its indigenous communities and nations um, so of course on one level it's all about colonialism but that's far too simple and also far too complex an answer um uh, we, the other person we were travelling with was a great, great man called Sean Harris, who's the uncle of Miss Do, who died in custody. And uh, when we were in Kalgoorlie, actually, um, Elijah's father was actually arrested the day before the anniversary of his death. Uh, it's been a year since he died. And they were both actually arrested on similar things, which is unpaid fines. When you happen to be near a court or come to the attention of police and you've got unpaid fines, you can be arrested. And when, um, you know, I've talked to Sean a lot about the experience of his niece who passed away 
lying um, in custody and, and was taken to hospital despite complaining of pain. People are probably very familiar with this case. But it's shocking to me that in the 21st century someone can die in custody when they're detained because they have unpaid fines. And then right in front of me, I mean, I wasn't there, but right on the day we are in Kalgoorlie, there's Elijah Dowdy's uh, father being arrested on the same count. And people are fearful that if they're taken into custody, they are at risk. And it's a well-grounded fear in my view. Um, there's, you know, dying in custody must be appalling. Um, but the rates at which it happens to Aboriginal people specifically is awful. And for not, not, not for any good reason, this shouldn't be happening in the 21st century. We've had a Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody that's now nearly 30 years old. And we haven't seen basic um, implementation of a number of the large majority majority of those recommendations and it could be saving lives. So there's an intense suspicion that um, uh, people that the police are not to be trusted, will not um, necessarily tell the truth about the interaction you had with them, and that if you are taken into custody, which can happen for the most minor things, that your life might well be at risk. That's a terrible foundation for a relationship with an authority, and it's it's got to change. And the, I, I'm not sure that waiting or shaming or campaigning on a, a to directly to police per se is going to be the total solution to that problem either. What I like about things like Copwatch is it's saying you don't have to wait for that. You can start to do things yourself that can have an impact on that relationship with police. You're already doing it. Let's make sure you do it well and safely. Let's um, organise to be in touch with people, journalists, for example. So we travelled with Amy Maguire as well so that when you've got footage that you think shows uh, a bad interaction with police and one that could be better and that might shock the rest of the country, you've got a journalist that you can trust with to tell that story on a national scale. Um, And so it's partly just organising around the technology that's available. Not that that's going to totally solve this problem, but more like it's a um, method through which you can make your voice heard and start to change the dynamic without necessarily relying on the police to do it themselves. Having said that... um, This does also spark conversations with police. Uh, It's a form of holding them accountable because when you say to them, we're running a workshop on filming interactions with police, they might feel that they're under a responsibility to behave better. And that's what the research shows, that police do behave better when they're filming and that we also can't necessarily rely on body cameras to do that uh, when they're in the control of police, that people themselves taking um, this kind of stand can have an impact, uh, but it will take some time and the problems are so deep and ingrained, I'm not at all naive about what it will take to turn this around, but Mm. I think it is possible. There's a history in this country of measures that are trialled on Indigenous people, mostly repressive measures, then Mm. being rolled out on the general population. I guess the most recent example is the cashless um, welfare quarantining. Yeah. Do you think that this project might have broader implications? I mean, it's not merely Indigenous people who have fraught relationships with police. I mean, are there plans to roll this out in non-Indigenous communities? Yeah, I think it would be worthwhile. There's The organisation I w- worked for is called Witness and they provide a whole bunch of resources on a range of things like filming protests, how you can film protests well so that you capture everything on camera and you also have a place to store it, that you work with a team and that you know um, who to call if you're arrested, that you've got a backup system in place. Um, absolutely. One of the things that the National Justice Project 
project doing is doing is developing an app where um, you can press a button and it notifies people that you've set in that you've pre-entered, who people you trust that you're involved in an incident, and then it also records the incident. Now that can be used by a, a kid riding a bike and um, frightened of the police in Alice Springs, but it could also be used by anyone who's got engaged in interaction with police. There's a lot of ways in which we can scale this stuff to a whole variety of contexts. Um, and we, we've got the resources, we're developing them over time. We would like to see more of this. I think we can't wait for police to start counting things like use of force, to start showing some statistics about how they racially um, identify, or how they identify people to, um, to, to stop and whether that's racially motivated. I don't think we can expect them to do that. We have to try and get them to do it by campaigning for changes in how policing works. And this is one way in which we can do it. And it doesn't just have to be concentrated in Aboriginal communities, but they're the people at the moment who are really calling out for it. And I completely understand why. Okay. Uh, the obvious um, question, I guess, and you've already touched on this yourself, is what happens if the footage is recorded and then circulated and nobody cares? I mean, a lot of, not a lot, but some of the killings in the US did take place on mm. camera and there were no prosecutions. But I th- particularly in Australia, there's a long track history of injustices being documented. I'm thinking of the uh, the Black Deaths in Custody report and then none of the, um, implica- none of the um, recommendations being implemented. Is that not a risk that you might actually record this um, brutal interaction or maybe even a killing, mm. you circulate it? nothing happens. Of course, that's a risk that happens, I think, in any campaign that you have to work out what to do when you can't get people to change their minds. What I would say, though, is Dondale, I think, is an interesting example. So Dylan Voller actually was someone who travelled with us and spoke very so well. Dylan Voller was the young man who was filmed in the spit. That's right. Chained to the chair. Um, yeah, he's kind of the iconic image we associate with Dondale now. We knew what the problems were in Dondale for a long time. People had been talking about them. Um, They had raised them with members of parliament. They had uh, discussed it with various other uh, regulatory bodies and there was people weren't paying attention uh, it wasn't until we saw someone like Dylan Voller in a spithorge or other children being um, assaulted essentially uh, being treated very poorly in that in that detention center that we started to realize that there was a very significant problem that needed that captured the national imagination I'm, I'm not saying that's true for every campaign but I think it would also be a mistake to underestimate the impact of of visual images and video in uh, helping people understand these complex problems that often occur well out of the sight of key decision makers and influential people on the east coast of Australia. So I wouldn't underestimate it, but of course I'm alive to the fact that um, that it may not achieve the impacts that we hope for. Um, it's just one part of the equation and nothing is going to substitute for uh, dynamic, engaging social movements that capture the imagination of the local communities but also have very strong links with people in all different sectors and um, industries in and all over the country. Like that would, that would be ideally what I would like to see, a proper... Um, 
genuinely strong social movement that has um, complexity and depth of knowledge around colonialism in all its forms and particularly how that manifests in policing. Uh, But we have to get there somehow and this is one of the steps that we take there. But of course, we also need to be uh, sanguine about what we can do in the short term and what our long-term objectives are. Mm. It's building like like a brain. You're building neural pathways between people and um, hopefully that that leads to a, a greater intelligence for us all communally. Um, if that makes sense as a metaphor, I'm not sure that it does. Um, but what I would like to see is that, that those kind of workshops happen. So when you go into a community and you say, oh, we think you're running this workshop on filming police violence, that people show up and they didn't realise that other people were there and that they were also interested in this and, you know, that you can have a network of trust so that when before you share something that might get you in trouble, you know who to talk to about it and you've got someone who you who you know will believe you. So uh, there's no shortcuts here, absolutely. And and technology has its own problems. It creates problems as well as uh, opportunities for social change. But it's my sense is we need to make use of it and we need to, given that people are already using this te- technology, make sure they're doing it well. Uh, the, the footage from Dondale briefly drew mainstream attention to the extraordinary situation of um, incarceration, particularly young Indigenous incarceration in the Northern Territory, which really in some ways seems the the sharp edge of Indigenous oppression Mm. in Australia. I mean, it's only one form of it, but it's a particularly brutal form. What do you make of the fact that the conversation, certainly in the big cities and in the media around Indigenous issues at the moment, the predominant form of it seems to be the debates around... Australia Day and the renaming of the statues. How do you see those issues as connected? I mean, is it possible to to connect them? Do you see um, the the Australia Day debate as a as a distraction, or how would you draw the links between them? It's a good question because, on one level, I would like to see Australia Day gone, certainly from January twenty sixth. Uh, and I would like to see a proper reckoning with Australia's past as a settler colonial state. However, I would also like to see genuine investment and infrastructure in remote communities where people are suffering from health problems, over-policing, poor housing, particularly disability services. I think it's not a surprise that a lot of people who are in prison have disabilities and that's a particular problem in Aboriginal communities when they're in remote locations because they don't have those proper services. So prison is one place that you can get proper health care and services and treatment and it's a place that you can um, feel safe maybe from other people in your community. That's a terrible indictment on Australian society in my view. So how do you start to resolve that problem I do think it's important that we come to terms with our past and make sure that we understand that when we arrived in this country, there were over 200 languages and people had lived here for tens of thousands of years and survived in an extremely hostile climate. And now only 13 Aboriginal languages are actually spoken by children, which is horrendous. The loss of um, culture and and diversity and um, interesting alternative ways of living that have, have happened in the last 200 years is astonishingly bad. 
and mostly how people learn about this is that Aboriginal people were hunters and gatherers who weren't engaged in any kind of resistance when settlement happened, which is is a terrible foundation for building a society where we can, you know, where there's recon- genuine reconciliation. Um, yeah, I mean, I once heard somebody refer to reconciliation as when both parties can agree on what happened in the past. And I think that's quite a challenge in Australian society when you still celebrate um, the dispossession of Aboriginal people, where you still have statues of people where they were known for taking away children, you know, for essentially state-sponsored genocide. So we need to come to terms with that history. I also don't think Australia is alone. I mean, I live in London and I was walking around behind... Um, behind one of the main strips and there's a statue of Clive of India who was a notorious, yeah. uh, brutal murderer, um, you know, essentially colonised India on, with with immense violence uh, on behalf of the British. And that stands as an enormous monument sitting in the middle of London that nobody seems too fussed about. And I see that all the time around London. So I wouldn't make out like Australia is the only place that hasn't come to terms with its past and what it means. There's certainly other places that are in that list of um, misremembering history, but we it would be good if we could lead on this and this is maybe one way to start. But it's only going to be useful, I feel, talking about Australia Day and these statues if we can connect it to the lived experience of the Aboriginal population today. And the problem is much bigger than this kind of symbolism, but symbolism is a critical part of changing uh, the material reality for Aboriginal people, I feel. All right, before I let you go, I know you have done a lot of work on alternatives, alternative justice systems and alternatives Mm. to incarceration. What would that look like in some of these uh, places that you're visiting for the Cop Watch program? What would be a different kind of of justice system that might go some way to resolving some of these issues? There's lots of different alternatives. I think um, trying to get as many possible processes, particularly for young people, out of court environments where you can have alternative dispute resolution systems. Maybe you sit down and you talk with the person who is the victim of the offence and maybe as a result of agreeing certain parameters, you can have some kind of reckoning that occurs in private rather than in a public space. That doesn't necessarily work for everybody and it doesn't work for every offence. But the more we can see um, alternative ways of resolving um, problems of criminal responsibility um, outside of courtrooms, the better. There There are programs here in Victoria, there's a Koori Court, um, so you can go and attend and they make accommodations for people who um, are Aboriginal in a good way, I think, make them feel more comfortable with the court process and they have different ways of resolving disputes. And I think there's a bunch of procedural things you could do. You can have um, more elders more involved in these processes and, um, you know, cultural knowledge and cultural practices that we know occur in communities around punishment for offences incorporated into or acknowledged in, in the white criminal justice system. There's a lot of possibilities like that. I also think it would be good to um, find ways to remove police and the criminal justice system entirely from the process and better social services that help children at risk or uh, help build um, the capacity for societies to deal with children at risk. So, you know, again, you start to talk about this and you start to return to colonialism again but <laughs> helping people to parent well helping them um get to get it get knowledge of their culture in a real way before they end up in prison where there's great cultural programs for learning about your past the, i don't think that any of these things are unrelated um but you know the the worst aspect of it is having a bunch of kids go into court and end up in prison really early on in their lives uh that sets their their trend for their life 
for the remainder of their life. So ways that we can avoid criminal justice being a feature of Aboriginal people's lives early on, will, they, they will come in many forms, but it, it will be, I think all of them will be beneficial to setting them on a better path where they can live a healthier and longer life um, and as much as possible out of prison. The program's called Cop Watch. You can find it on its website. We've been talking to one of the people involved in it, Lizzie O'Shea. Lovely to chat with you again, Lizzie. Lovely to be here.